You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. You may have heard me say this last week, but in the middle of a massive breaking news story, it's very difficult to find context or understanding. They only come with time and answers. In fact, in the early days of a huge story, like perhaps the most deadly stabbing spree in Canadian history, even the actual facts can be hard to come by. They tend to emerge one by one over the next few days and weeks as we learn more. By now, it has been more than a week since Miles Sanderson began a stabbing spree that left 11 dead and 18 injured. And there is much we now know that we didn't know then about Sanderson himself, about his victims and their community, about the RCMP response, the province-wide manhunt, and how Miles Sanderson ended up dead in police custody. But there are still mysteries here, and only by continually asking questions of the police, of witnesses, of reporters on the ground, will Canadians learn the answers. So today, more than a week later, we'll try to get a sense of what really happened last week in Saskatchewan. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jana Pruden is a feature writer for The Globe and Mail. She's covered crime for many years. She's even written two books about crime in Saskatchewan. Hello, Jana. Hello. Can you maybe start, I know this is a week later, but now that we kind of have a better assessment of what happened, can you just outline for us uh, the attacks and the four-day manhunt? Like, when did we realize something was horribly wrong uh, in Saskatchewan? Yeah, it really was uh, Sunday morning. Uh, we now know that the first 911 call comes in around 5.40 a.m. Um, and that officers got to the scene around 6.18 a.m. But for the rest of us in, in the public, the first sign really would have been around quarter after seven when the RCMP released a public alert that there was a dangerous person on the loose. Now, that alert came out. Uh, I got that actually in my inbox, checking my email on a Sunday. Hmm. But, um, you know, those alerts are not completely infrequent, um, not totally uncommon. And I think that it was really a couple hours later that morning when uh, word started to get out that something had happened uh, that was really bad on the First Nation and someone like myself, I was sort of seeing some of my uh, people in Saskatchewan talking about something really bad happening. And although I wasn't working that day, I ended up calling into the RCMP press conference that afternoon. And that's when we heard that uh, there were at least 10 people dead. And uh, at the time, I think they were saying 15 injured. And of course, that's when uh, we all knew in the press and soon the public that there was a very, very serious situation unfolding in Saskatchewan. 
In a moment, I'll ask you about the logistics of the manhunt. But maybe first, you know, with the benefit of hindsight now, how did the RCMP respond in the moments when it became clear that there was a killer on the loose? This is obviously something the RCMP has dealt with uh, and been criticized for in recent years. Yeah, you know, I think the the full RCMP response will, I'm sure, be um, very parsed and there may even be an inquiry, uh, as sometimes happen in a case of this magnitude. But from what we know so far, those early hours, they appear to have acted very quickly. Um, you know, the 911 calls comes in at 540. The officers get there at 618. There is quite a large distance between the detachment and uh, the James Smith Cree Nation. So um, we understand they were dispatched within three minutes and they went straight there. So that timing all makes sense. And then the alert is released at 712. So that is you know, less than an hour later, that still may seem like a long time, but considering all the things that have to happen to make sure that the alert goes out, that it's accurate, you know, uh, that does take time and certainly not the kind of delay and not the kind of things that we've seen criticized coming out of uh, Nova Scotia and Porta Peak. Um, so it appears that uh, there were a lot of lessons learned and that in this case, every effort was made to identify that this was a threat to the public, um, that it was potentially an ongoing situation and to get the word out there as soon as possible. And um, one of the things that I saw in social media or critiques I heard from people around by the end of the week is that they were tired of getting these alerts and found there were too many alerts. Hmm. So um, (laughs) I think uh, the RCMP really has taken it seriously that the public needs to be notified and notified as soon as possible when there's a serious situation ongoing. Can you explain uh, maybe a little bit more about the multiple places that there were attacks? I mean, now, again, later, we sort of know that that most of the fatalities were on James Smith Cree Nation. But in the hours afterwards, you know, we heard that there were several crime scenes at various locations. Did that hold up? Like, can you sort of take us into that detail? Yeah, so the RCMP said that there were, uh, they originally said 10 deceased and 15 injured, that later rose to 18 injured, between 13 scenes. And um, although we don't have an exact list of locations, I from what we have been able to put together, I believe that that makes sense to me. Um, keeping in mind that, say, a scene within a home and then another fatality outside would be two separate crime scenes. So with the sheer number of people injured and killed, that doesn't entirely surprise me. As you know, there was some question of where all of these things happened. And since then, we've determined that uh, all of the fatal victims, except one, were in the James Smith Cree Nation. uh, And then there was one gentleman in a nearby town. And then there is an 11th fatality, which is Damien Sanderson, who was originally identified as a suspect um, and was later found deceased. Mm -hmm. Um, Of the 18 who were injured, I personally have confirmation that 15 are from the First Nation. I don't know if the other three are from other communities or if they were people who um, did not immediately seek treatment and so weren't immediately confirmed to be on this list. So, um, But what we do know is that absolutely the almost all of the attacks took place uh, within the community, except for one fatality. 
What do we know about uh, Damian Sanderson's involvement or non-involvement? Is he still considered a suspect? Well, that's a really good question. I think that's a question that a lot of us are thinking a lot about and have been working on in the past few days and trying to determine. So the last statement that we received from police commanding officer Rhonda Blackmore, uh, she did say that Damien was still considered to have been a suspect. Now, he had been charged with uh, one count of first degree murder. Um, People may recall he was originally uh, identified as a suspect who was wanted uh, along with his brother. And then on Monday is when his body was found in the tall grasses near one of the other scenes. In the community, there's a lot of people who say that he was not a suspect at all and that he was only a victim. Hmm. Um, I think that's a detail that we're going to hear a lot more about in the days to come and that I know, you know, reporters like myself and my colleagues are, are working very hard to figure out. I'm not sure if you know anything about this or even uh, if we'll ever know this, but do we know where and why these attacks started? Was there a catalyst uh, for Miles, I guess, and or Damian Sanderson that began this? And and if we don't know that, then do we at least know, you know, where they began? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that we're working on uh, continuing to report pretty intensively this week. What may have happened? We've heard some things about, uh, you know, the state that Miles was in on Friday night. That's something that we're chasing. And then, of course, this unfolds on Sunday. We believe at this point that the attack began at uh, the house of Bonnie and a man known as Buggy Burns. In a press release, Mark Arcand, who's a, he's a tribal chief from Saskatoon, but was speaking in this capacity as a grieving relative. He said that he believes that Miles and Damien went to the home of Bonnie and Buggy Burns to speak to or confront or to see Bonnie and Buggy's adult son, Gregory Burns. It sounds like Miles and Damien go there and um, an incident happens with Gregory in which Gregory is stabbed and killed. At some point, his mother, Bonnie, runs outside. Bonnie is also killed. And uh, another woman, Gloria Burns, who's a community crisis worker who had come to the scene, she is also there. And uh, she also gets stabbed and killed. And that seems to be the beginning of the spree that then goes on, of course, to several other houses and uh, outside of the community as well. Now I do want to ask you about the manhunt that went on for four days and, you know, had three provinces on alert. And maybe maybe the first thing I'll ask you, as somebody who has covered crime in Saskatchewan, m- many or most of our listeners haven't been there and certainly don't know much about rural Saskatchewan. How do you conduct a manhunt in an area so vast like that? Like, maybe just describe what they were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um Part of the problem is that, you know, when someone has a vehicle and there's a very large amount of space, it's not necessarily a hunt like dogs tracking down by the water for, a right. you know, a, a robbery suspect runs away on foot and you get the police dogs there and they can do a very intensive search in a small amount of area. Um, here, similar to Porta Peak, similar to um, the manhunt people may remember a few years ago in uh, northern 
BC, Northern Alberta, Northern Manitoba of two young men who uh, committed some murders up there. You know, you have an incredibly large amount of space and there had been one sighting of a vehicle that Miles and at that point Damien were believed to be in. It was seen in uh, central Regina. Um, We still to this day don't really know if that was a real sighting or not, or if it was them, or if it was just the suspect uh, vehicle. That's a a question mark. The Mm. police chief there had said, you know, it was seen and that it was later confirmed. So I sort of, uh, there's an assumption that maybe the vehicle was caught on video or something, but we we don't fully know who was in the vehicle or if it was them. And then hours passed. Throughout the days of the search, police did say um, for at least a couple of days that they still believed that uh, Miles might be in Regina. There was an emergency alert issued when there was a potential sighting back on the James Smith Cree Nation. Right. All of the towns in that area were on high alert. And I think it was easy because of the way that the search unfolded, that it was happening in a lot of places, that there weren't, you know, tactical teams combing around one field or something. Mm -hmm. It could have been easy to think that a search was not happening or that it wasn't too intense. I think what we really have heard from our CMP is that there was very intensive searching happening um, using all of the latest technology. There were some resources that were brought in from other provinces that RCMP in Saskatchewan didn't have. Um, So there was an intensive search occurring at all times. Of course, RCMP, you know, almost better than anyone understood the full scope of the threat that was out there. And um, in the end, they did locate him. (laughs) What do we know about how the manhunt ended? Well, we know that at uh, 2 p.m. on Wednesday, someone in the town of Wakaw uh, reported a break in inter and that he was seeing it was a positive identification of Miles, that he had a knife at the time and that he stole a white Chevy Avalanche from that property and went on the run. There was another emergency alert issued. The province was really on high alert. You know, I was, um, I have friends and relatives there. I was, of course, monitoring, you know, various um, Facebook groups and places where people were expressing their feelings at the time. And, you know, people were very, very scared. Yeah. So he's seen in the area, this alert goes out. And then the vehicle is spotted on Highway 11, uh, south of Rostern, by an RCMP officer in an unmarked vehicle. There were a lot of vehicles in the province at the time, RCMP vehicles everywhere, marked and unmarked. Uh, We have a plane pulling up to the highway, lots of reports of a chase that occurs on the highway. And of course, people passing, some of them pulled out cameras and recorded moments of it. Uh, the RCMP, due to the speeds he was traveling, they, they estimated 150 kilometers an hour. They forced him off the road. He was taken from the vehicle by RCMP and appeared to be uninjured. There's images of him being arrested and he's standing. He doesn't appear to have a major amount of blood on him or anything like that. Uh, he's taken into custody along the highway and then... Uh, He dies in police custody later that day.
we did see pictures of him seemingly okay being arrested. And then we heard this announcement that he was dead. And I believe uh, what the RCMP said is that he was in medical distress and he passed away. Do we know what that means? Will we ever find out what happened here? I think we may not find out everything that happened over the course of this week, but I do believe we will find out his cause of death. As you say, he did look okay when he was seen in those videos. The RCMP said he went into medical distress in cells, that he was given all possible medical interventions by RCMP until EMS could get there. He was rushed by ambulance to hospital, but he was uh, pronounced dead there. Some sources have told us and others that it was a drug overdose. There's no confirmation from RCMP on that. Commanding Officer Rhonda Blackmore would not confirm whether Narcan was one of the life-saving measures that was taken Hmm. at the scene when he went into medical distress. And she said, I think fairly, that she wasn't going to speak to his cause of death until there was an autopsy. Hmm. And I, you know, I don't think that that's, (laughs) I don't think that's a bad thing to wait until um, that's confirmed. There's also an independent investigation that the RCMP have requested from um, independent investigators, police, and the Saskatchewan sort of investigative unit that looks into um, police injuries or fatalities. Right. So there will be an investigation, and um, I do expect we will learn how he died as a matter of public accountability and, um, you know, transparency. Speaking of transparency, it's great that we will hopefully uh, figure out how he died. But one of the things um, that a lot of people who have followed the RCMP or even just covered crime in Canada in general have been saying is, you know, now that Miles Sanderson is dead, how much will we ever really find out about what happened here and why? And again, you mentioned Porta Peak uh, earlier in this chat. You know, once the suspect is gone, um, there tends to be a lot less transparency from the police without a trial. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that ends up with less transparency by police, but yes, there is no trial where the evidence is, you know, tested in a public forum. Um, There well could be an inquiry, in which case we often get way more information than we would get from a trial. Hmm. One thing I would say is having covered, um, unfortunately, a lot of multiple murders and a few mass murders, is that even if the person does not die, we often never get a satisfying reason why, because there is not ever a satisfying reason, really. Um, we're starting to hear some things about Miles. We know about his his criminal history. We know about a domestic violence history, um, issues with drugs and alcohol, that he wasn't following court orders, things like that. He'd been out of prison relatively recently. Will we ever figure out what made him commit this truly horrendous act of violence? We may get some pieces around the edges, but I, I'm sure that... The real reason, if there is one, yeah, will never be known. Do you think there will be more reporting out of this around uh, the parole board and the justice system in general, given uh, his extensive, I mean, neither you or I need to list them here, but extensive criminal history and the fact that he was, uh, I guess, on early release as this happened? Yeah, I mean, as someone who has done a lot of reporting about the parole system and the justice system, you know, the reporting is out there. This is not the first time that those systems have come out of scrutiny. One thing that I do 
think is really important to correct because there's a lot of um, a lot of misunderstanding of the parole system. You know, he wasn't released on early parole. He was released on statutory release, okay. which is where um, all offenders are sort of presumed to be released at two thirds of their sentence. And the purpose of that is really to release someone into the community with supports and conditions so that hopefully they can be stable enough that when their sentence expires, they are not as great a risk to the public, right? So, you know, if you hold someone to warrant expiry, meaning the very last day of their sentence, then suddenly they're just like out in the community with no support, no conditions around the things that may be issues for them. So with someone like Miles, where domestic violence, drug and alcohol problems were identified as triggers and as concerning behaviors, getting out on stat release means that you have a parole officer, you have conditions not to drink, you have conditions not to be in contact with your uh, domestic partner, To um, he had a condition to report any new relationships. Hmm. So um, there is a there is a reason why the system works like that. I guess there will be some questions here about, you know, is that the, the thing that failed? Is the sentence the thing that failed? The sentence wasn't long enough. Um, you know, did systems earlier in his life fail? All, all of those will be questions. And, uh, you know, I think it's always good to reassess how these systems work and and how they serve um, the public and maybe how sometimes they don't. But um, I also think I see sometimes in the wake of a really horrible uh, situation like this, that there's a there's a desire to change something so it will never happen again. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the system has worked like <laughs> 999 times. Yeah. And the one time it doesn't, it's devastating. But um, I'm not sure if always changing the system is the thing that fixes that. But I don't know. We don't know all the details here yet. And uh, I certainly won't be the one in charge of making that decision. You mentioned the community, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, James Smith cremation. I know that uh, some of the elders have spoken about the need for privacy around the victims and their family. Um, but what have people from the community said in the wake of this, and, and what do they need right now? That is a really good question. I think, you know, it's almost impossible to imagine what it must be like to have this many losses in a small community, a small, uh, relatively tight-knit community. The chiefs who were speaking at the press conference the other day, you know, they're not only leaders of the community, they all have been affected by this. Everyone in the community um, knows someone, is related to someone who died. So coming from the outside, I think it's really almost impossible to imagine what they will go through as a community. Uh, the chiefs and community leaders in their press conference last week, and the premier was there, our CMP representatives were there, were calling for donations that can help with trauma in the community. Um, they were calling for additional supports, really a focus on long-term healing, long-term changes. I think we're starting to see in the early days, very, very, very few people were speaking to, to the media. And of course, it's not nice when the media descends on your community in the wake of something like this. 
We're definitely starting to see some people wanting to share a bit about their loved ones and the people whose lives were lost. And then bigger questions about uh, policing on First Nations, you know, having officers that can respond more quickly than RCMP can get to a scene. Um, So I think there's there's a, a lot of really complex things that that could help, that may help ideas that are being considered. And um, those are things that are going to keep emerging in the days and weeks to come. You know, having worked with a lot of a lot of communities after tragic events, you know, we are still in the shock phase. We're still in the very, very, very early days. We're yeah. a few days after his arrest and then death. And we're really at the beginning of a very, very long journey of... Um, trauma and healing in this community and in the whole province, because these incidents obviously affect many, many, many more people than just those who directly lose someone. Last question, and I know you mentioned that uh, you and your colleagues are reporting pretty intensively this week. Um, What comes next? What are we still waiting for from the RCMP, if anything? Like, do you guys have a timeline of what you're chasing next? Um, I think, you know, some of those big questions have to do with uh, the role that Damien had, uh, whether he was a suspect in any of them or whether he was a a victim from the very beginning. More about the victims, you know, I, I personally believe really strongly in telling stories of victims, those who survived the attack, those who didn't. You know, I think it's really important to know that these are people, they're not just names or or numbers on a page. And so the more that we can get to know about who people were and, you know, who they were to the people who loved them and how they'll be remembered, I think is is really important reporting. I know there are some extremely harrowing stories from those who were who were hurt but who survived this attack. And then, of course, continuing to uh, examine the systems uh, around Miles's life and what could have been done differently and whether there's lessons that can help prevent and respond to crises like this in the future. Jana, thank you so much for this and uh, good luck getting those answers. Yeah, thank you so much. Jana Pruden in Saskatchewan for The Globe and Mail. That was the big story. We talked today about Miles Sanderson. What I would like to do is make sure you know the names of his victims. They are Thomas Burns, Carol Burns, Gregory Burns, Lydia Gloria Burns, Bonnie Burns, Earl Burns, Lena Head, Christian Head, Robert Sanderson, and Wesley Pedersen. All of the victims were residents of James Smith Cree Nation, apart from Wesley Pedersen, who lived in Weldon. You can find The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca and on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.